It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, horses raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this old way. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Uh, if, if you haven't heard the show, usually the show's in two parts. The first part of the show, we usually talk about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets one, one generation to the next, paying the least amount of taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, avoiding guardianships while you're alive. And as far as elder law is concerned, our main focus usually is to try to save our assets, especially our house, from nursing home bills. Ordinarily, the second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, but um, today we're going to do just, we're going to focus just on estate planning. And, I'm, you know, at, at the end of June, we're going to be doing seminars, and if you want to attend one of our seminars, give us a call at our office at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. And Beth, where are we doing our seminars this month? Well, um, Monday, June 19th. 2023 um we're at buckley's restaurant and caterers that's 2926 avenue s brooklyn new york um and you'll have two seminars there one at 11 a.m and one at 3 p.m on tuesday june 20th 2023 we're at deluca's trattoria in Staten Island, 616 Forest Avenue, Staten Island. And once again, there are two seminars, one at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Wednesday, June 21st, 2023, um, we're at Greenhouse Cafe in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, 7717 Third Avenue. And two seminars, this one, 3 o'clock p.m. and 7 o'clock p.m. Thursday, June 22nd, 2023, Connolly's Corner, 71-17 Grand Avenue in Maspeth. That's in Queens. Um, we have two seminars again, one at 3 p.m., one at 7 p.m. And the final one in, for our June seminars, Friday, June 23rd, 2023, one at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. at the Adria Hotel and Conference Center, 221-17 Northern Boulevard, Bayside. Um, we realize that a lot of you have wanted to attend the seminars have just and just not been able to. So, um, Mr. Connors, my husband, is going to give a seminar today. So, um, enjoy it. And for those who can't make the seminars, I am sorry because the question and answer period is, a little more, is one of the most interesting and fun times. But here you are, a Connors and Sullivan seminar. All right. Now, again, 
I start every seminar with a will. And I know a lot of people ask the question, is it, should I do a will or should I do a trust? And here's one, you know, and, and sometimes you read some of these books and, and whatever, and they say, well, a will's outdated, so forth and so on, and will's got to go through probate. Well, technically, a will does not have to go through probate if there are no assets to probate. But everybody should have a will. A will is a writing witnessed by two people that disposes of assets in your name alone. It appoints an executor. The executor is the person you choose to be in charge of your legal financial business matters after you're gone. And that's one of the main reasons you do a will. You don't want chaos. You want somebody in charge. And, you know, you think, well, I've got all my assets taken care of, um, so why do I need a will? Well, you know, things happen. You know, everybody, no matter what your circumstances, you may think you got all your assets, all your bank accounts explained, everything else, your house is in a trust, and we'll talk about a trust a little bit later. And, you know, that takes care of all my assets, so why do I need a will? Because other things come up. Let's say for the sake of argument, you have a check in the mail. You own a car. Very few people that I know have put their cars in a trust because in some cases the insurance company that insures the car if it goes into a trust, they double or triple the insurance rate. So people are usually not willing to, you know, pay that extra insurance. And, you know, it's a simplified probate if your car, let's say, goes through, you know, the court procedure or whatever, assuming the car is worth less than $50,000. It's usually not that difficult. You know, yes, if you can get rid of the car before you're gone, fine. But things don't always work out that way. You may have a car. Sometimes there's a fight over jewelry or personal possessions or personal items, and that's why you need a will. And I'll, I'll give you, I'm going to give you a couple of examples when almost tragic things happen because somebody didn't have a will. And these are both true stories. One, we had a client. She was superstitious. I don't want to do a will. I have annuities. All I own are annuities, and I have beneficiaries on my annuities. I don't need to do a will. She died in an apartment. She died in her apartment. The police sealed the apartment when she died, which is common. I think most of you might have seen somewhere along the line. You see like a yellow line stretched across the the door. Well, the woman left in, in the annuities her friends. She didn't leave any of her relatives. So to get her furniture was in the hotel room, to turn, uh, to, not the hotel room, the apartment room, to terminate the lease, to get her personal items, to get her jewelry. Well, ordinarily we have to get an, an executor or administrator appointed. Since she didn't have a will, there's no executor. So we wanted to get an administrator appointed. So now she didn't leave any of her relatives in her plan. So her relatives weren't interested in cooperating. And so they did nothing. Yes, eventually you can go to the public administrator in the county and they will appoint somebody to collect the furniture and the jewelry and so forth and you know but then it'll go to the state or the next of kin if the next of kin puts a claim in but in the meanwhile while this is happening you're talking about six nine months um the rent's being paid the rent was being paid it was taken out of her account directly so she's paying the rent for this whole time period uh the landlord's not going to the public administrator nobody else is going to the public administrator because there's nothing in it for him so her $10,000 checking account went to nothing. Then eventually the public administrator takes over. The relatives aren't interested in the person's jewelry, furniture, and whatever. 
just goes, gets confiscated, and the landlord got screwed a little bit because he didn't get his full rent paid for the whole time period. And, it, it, you know, obviously it wasn't the best plan. And this is one that I always talk about in our seminars, but there was a woman who was on SSI. And those of you who know SSI, you collect about $800 a, a month. Social Security, you collect Medicaid. Um, that's Otto in our background, if you know. He's trying. He's guarding the door. He's there. guarding us. Yeah, but somebody's trying to get into this place. Uh, but you collect about $800 a month of Social Security. Uh, you collect other benefits, food stamps, whatever, depending on your circumstances. And the woman was collecting $800 a month in Social Security. She was an SSI. She was disabled. She was disfigured from birth. Um, she didn't think she needed a will because everything she had was a bank account, a joint bank account that was $2,000, and it was joint with her best friend. And her best friend would take her out to lunch every week. Her best friend would make sure she had a place to go for the holidays. Not that the woman on SSI didn't have a family. She had a sister. But the sister disowned her because the woman on SSI was physically disfigured, and her sister was ashamed to be with her, had nothing to do with her. Now, this woman lived in what we used to call a welfare hotel. I think right now half the cities of Manhattan are probably welfare hotels. But she didn't even own the furniture in the hotel room, so why did she need a will? She had a $2,000 bank account. That $2,000 bank account was joint with her best friend. So in this hotel, there's a fire in the hotel. The woman in SSI dies in the fire. Lawsuits were brought. Other people were hurt. The public administrator tagged the lawn again. She had no relative. Uh, she had no relatives put in a claim. The public administrator tagged the lawn on the lawsuit. Eventually, the cases were settled. The woman had no will. Who gets the money from the lawsuit? The friend who paid for the funeral, or the sister who didn't even go to the funeral? It went to the sister who didn't even go to the funeral. Didn't even have anything to do with her. And it was a little bit of a nice settlement. And it went the wrong way. Why? Because the woman in SSI didn't think she needed a will, which is wrong. Everybody should do a will. Now, I mean, you want to plan things that we don't need to will to transfer many assets. You know, we do that. We have assets with beneficiaries. We have them in trust. But you always there always could be a backup. You could have your bank accounts joint with somebody. That person who's on your bank account dies before you. And then you say, well, that's no big deal. I'll just go to the bank and change the account over. That could be. But let's say you're both 90 and the person who dies is 90 and you're 90 and you're not mentally alert or capable of changing the bank accounts at that point. So, you know, that's where a will could come into play. You never know. I mean, you could be in a car accident. Car accidents happen all the time now. You go across the street, you get hit by a car. The lawsuit takes years. Not, I'm not even talking about if the car accident kills you. The law, the lawsuit takes years. Maybe you're 80 when you're hit by the car. You die at 85, and the lawsuit hasn't been settled yet. The executor under the will can settle the lawsuit and give the money to whomever you choose to give that money to. So, you know, that's one reason to do a will. Sometimes you inherit money that you don't think you're going to inherit. Uh, maybe you got some cousin somewhere who doesn't do a will, and everything goes to her cousins in equal shares. And, and maybe they're 10 cousins. It's $100,000. Maybe $10,000 goes through that estate. And maybe it's coming your way. But by the time that estate is settled, which takes years in that kind of situation, uh, because you've got to notify all the cousins, and they all get a claim in the estate. So 
Maybe you got that $10,000 check. Maybe your cousin was a millionaire. Maybe it's a $100,000 check. Maybe that cousin is a millionaire and doesn't have that many other cousins. And, and so maybe you get a million dollars in the mail. Who gets that? That goes according to your will. Now, if you don't have a will, the state writes a will for you. And the assets in your name alone go to your next of kin by law, which ordinarily would be your spouse and your children. If you have no spouse or children, if you leave grandchildren, your grandchildren, if you don't have grandchildren, then it would go back to your parents. And sometimes that's a bad result. We could have, we had a, a woman one time who was 87 years of age. She left everything to her mother. Mother was 102. And that wasn't a good result because mom was in a nursing home and all the daughter's life savings went to pay for mom's nursing home bill. Not the best plan we could have had. Again, we could have used a will. And there, there's so many things that pop up. And even if you say, well, I don't have any jewelry, sometimes they're mementos and you just want to get the mementos to the right place. And again, a will takes care of that. Everybody should have a will. You can come up with any kind of scenario you want, but you, it's always better to have a will. Now, yes, we don't want a lot of assets to pass through a will because it's going to go through probate. And if it goes through probate, depending on the circumstances, it may take a long time to collect the assets to go through probate. But we should have a will, you know, as as a backup. And, you know, like sometimes people have abandoned property. They have insurance policies. They didn't pay the premiums on, but there's still a cash balance on it. It's sitting around after they're gone. Again, a will makes it a lot easier to collect those, you know, old stale insurance policies. So believe me, there's always something. Everybody should have a will. That's the starting point. And we're going to take a short break right now. We're going to hear from, uh, we're going to have a couple of commercials thrown in. We'll be back and we'll further up this conversation. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me, 
I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Again, we've been talking about estate planning since the beginning of the show, and we started talking about a will. And I mean, yeah, just take it. I, I If you come into my office, I can give you more reasons why you need a will. Everybody should have a will. And, you know, I, I give you a, a few months ago, Nicole was talking about a woman who came in who do one of those do-it-yourself wills. And it's one other thing, never do it yourself. Because she did a will and she says, I'm leaving everything to my four children. And Nicole said, what about your husband? You want to leave anything to your husband? I thought that was automatic. And it's not always automatic. And, you know, that's why you don't do it yourself. One of the biggest problems with doing yourself, yeah, you can have the format and everything and you can fill it out. But what are the questions that you're going to ask yourself before you fill out the will? Do you want to leave it to your spouse? Do you want to leave it to your children? And there's no automatic right that that things goes between husband and wife. And one of the things I should mention, let's say you own a house. You bought the house before you were married. Um, You don't do a will. The house is in your name alone when you pass away. you got a husband and two kids. Well, I'm simplifying it a little bit. But the house belongs 50% to your spouse, 25% got two kids, 25% to each one of the children. It doesn't automatically go to the spouse. And you got to keep that in mind with your estate planning. And it may be in some cases you inherited the property from your parents and your parents want you to leave it to your grandchildren. That's fine, or their grandchildren, your children. That's fine, but you should know what you're doing in your will. And believe me, the kits... Or if somebody buys some of those black books, trust things, I I can guarantee you, you read that, you can't understand what it says because I can't understand what it says. Not that you can't understand one one paragraph or whatever, but one paragraph from one section ordinarily contradicts a paragraph in another section, and you just got to put it together, and it's not always that easy. And another thing I don't like about those books, somebody can easily, it's a folder, somebody can... Un can take one page out and put another one in very easily and change the whole plan and the concepts without it being properly witnessed or executed. So I, I'm not a big fan of those books. And in my opinion, the books are contradictory. Unless you really know somebody who knows how to put it together, there could be a problem. And often there is a problem. A lot of times there's no problem because it leaves it to the two kids and the two kids get along and it doesn't come out to be a problem. But in any event, we talked about the wills, which is probably the most basic estate planning tool. The next step is a power of attorney. Now, a, a power of attorney is a notarized document that in New York is witnessed by two people. Now, if you did your will, uh, did your power of attorney 10 years ago, we didn't have to witness the power of attorney back then. It was just notarized. And technically, that power of attorney is still good. Although, in some cases, the path of least resistance is to update the power of attorney to the new format so that it's witnessed and notarized. Again, if you have an old one, it's probably good, 
but your children need that power of attorney in a hurry. They go to the bank. The bank mistakenly says this power of attorney is no good. It's outdated. They're wrong, but by the time you get to the legal department and try to straighten it out, it could be a month. So sometimes the path of least resistance is update your power of attorney every 10 years or so. And I'm not saying if you got a power of attorney and it was properly witnessed 10 years ago before the forms were changed by New York State, I'm not saying you have to run out and do it, but if you want to make things easier for your kids, it might not be a bad idea to update your power of attorney. Now, again, power of attorney is a very misunderstood document. And I would say in a lot of cases, in a lot of families, the power of attorney may be more important than the will. They're both important documents. But in some cases, for some family planning ideas, the power of attorney is more important than the will. Why? The power of attorney takes effect while you're alive. The power of attorney is usually there. God forbid you have a stroke or another disabling illness. You appoint a family member who can pay your bills, protect your assets. And why can that be important? Because that affects things while you're alive, where the will only takes effect after you're gone. So let's say we got a husband and wife. Husband has a master stroke. He has to go to a nursing home. Well, let's say he's got assets in his name alone. Let's say he's got a, an IRA of a few hundred thousand dollars. Let's say he has a brokerage account that he bought the stocks before he was married and never changed to joint with his wife. Um, he has a stroke. He has to go to a nursing home. I think most of you know that right now the average cost of a nursing home in New York City is probably more than $16,000 a month. So that's more than $500 a day. So let's say this husband has the stroke. The couple has you know, a million-dollar house that's joint, husband and wife, couple of hundred thousand in the husband's IRA, couple of hundred thousand in the husband's brokerage account. Maybe the wife has a couple of hundred thousand in her IRA. So husband has a stroke. He has to go to a nursing home. Wife wants to apply for Medicaid. Now, some of you say, well, she can't apply for Medicaid. There's a five-year look-back period. Well, we're going to talk a little bit later about exemptions to the five-year look-back period. But one of the exemptions to the five-year look-back period is transfers between spouses are exempt from penalty under the five-year look-back period. Husband has a stroke. Wife, if she has a power of attorney, can transfer all the assets over to her name. She does a spousal refusal. The husband gets Medicaid. You say, wait a minute, isn't there a five-year look-back period? Yes, there is. But if that means every transaction that you, every transaction you engage in for five years before your application for benefits can be scrutinized by Medicaid. But again, transfers between spouses are exempt from penalty. So husband transfers everything to wife. Maybe we need the power of attorney to do that. Wife signs what we call a spousal refusal. Husband gets Medicaid. Now, the wife better act to protect her assets because she may be sued for support for Medicaid, but at least the first crisis emergency situation is taken care of. And the husband can apply for benefits. Wife doesn't have to pay that $16,000 a month nursing home bill. Now, what happens if you don't have a power of attorney? Well, then the wife may have to go to court, get a court-appointed guardian to transfer the assets from husband and wife, and you have to get court permission to do it. And you never know what a judge is going to say or how long it's going to take. This was a few years ago, but we knew a lady. Her husband was 62. He had a stroke, didn't have a power of attorney. You could hardly blame him. 62 is relatively young. He had an $800,000 stock portfolio that was in his name alone. 
He started the portfolio before at work before he was married. He has a stroke. He goes to a nursing home. Wife doesn't have a PAV attorney. She goes to court to get a permission from the judge to transfer the assets from husband and wife to wife. Or actually, in this case, from husband to wife. Uh, it took the judge nine months to sign the order approving the transfer of assets from husband and wife to wife. Nine months at the time, and this was years ago, she was paying $11,000 a month in the nursing home. And, of course, right now it's a lot more. So she's paying nine times $11,000. It costs her $100,000 in paying nursing home bills because her husband didn't plan in advance, didn't have a power attorney. And you might say, well, husband and wife, don't you have an automatic right to sign each other's name? No, you do not. And so, and you get, well, why, why do I need a power of attorney to get my husband's, uh, let's say his name's on the deed, joint with you? You cannot transfer that house without your husband's signature. There's no automatic right between husband and wife to sign each other's name. You need permission for that power of attorney. And you might say, well, why do I want to transfer the house? Well, one, one reason you may want to transfer the house is because, let's say you have a deed to the house and it's husband and wife. Husband's in a nursing home. Wife dies. Nursing home can take that house. They can't take a house if the spouse is living there, but they can take it if the spouse dies. And in a lot of cases, in that case, what we would like to do is transfer that house into a trust where wife holds the house and trust for the children, and then we go from there. And But we can't do that if we don't have a power of attorney or court permission. And court permission, believe me, is expensive and takes a long time. Let's say the, the husband has an IRA, and he, he's got a couple hundred thousand dollars in his IRA. Well, an IRA doesn't stop you from applying for Medicaid. You can apply for Medicaid with money in an IRA. But let's say for the sake of argument, the wife wants to access that IRA and pay some bills, or maybe she wants to change the account from one bank to another, another in, one institution to another institution. She's moving to Florida or something like that, and she wants to move her assets and his assets to Florida. She can't do it without a power of attorney. She cannot, you know, that IRA, the minimum distribution has to go to the husband for the rest of his life. Hopefully it goes into a joint account, but the wife can't move that IRA. She can't access that IRA. So let's say she has some bills, and she want, let's say she wants to pay for some nursing home bills, and she wants to access the husband's IRA to pay for those nursing home bills. She can't do it without a power of attorney. It's a very powerful document. Now, we talked about exempt transfers for nursing home Medicaid. There are four exempt transfers for nursing home Medicaid. One is the one we just talked about, transfers between spouses. Another one is transfers to a disabled child. So let's say you, you have a, a, you know, again, we got a widow, widower, whichever one, but let's say a mom. Her husband died. She's got a child who collects Social Security disability. She has a stroke. Again, we're looking at fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars a month nursing home bills. We can transfer the assets either straight to the disabled child. Let's say the disabled child is mentally competent, alert, just maybe has a bad back, or even you know is in a wheelchair or something like that, but is mentally competent. Maybe we transfer the assets straight to the disabled child, or we transfer it in trust for the disabled child. And so let's say we transfer these assets and trust for the disabled child. We transfer all those assets, let's say, in the month of May right now. 
on June 1st, the first day of the month following the transfer, the parent, the mother in this case, can apply for nursing home Medicaid. Transfers to a disabled child are exempt from penalty under the five-year look-back period. And, you know, like some cases, let's say we have a fireman or police officer who collects disability, assuming they're over 55 and they're not working now, they can be declared a disabled child. We can transfer assets to that child, protect those assets from nursing home bills. But again, in some cases, we can't transfer those assets if it's in the person's name alone who had the stroke if we don't have power of attorney. Yes, if we have joint accounts, we may be able to switch the assets over. And another thing, too, like on, on some of these cases, in, in some cases, let's say you have a disabled child. Your disabled child is is mentally alert. They can sign documents. Maybe they work for a while. But let's say at some point you need to apply for benefits for that child. You need to uh, check on their medical records. You want to talk to their doctor. Well, if you want to talk to the doctor, that's where a health care proxy comes into play. And, and a health care proxy is kind of like a, a medical power of attorney. But let's say you have a disabled child. You want to help them apply for benefits. They can't quite do it on their own. Well, it makes it a lot easier if you have a power of attorney because, in effect, you can sign that child's name, get access to the child's medical records, and you know accomplish what you need to accomplish. Power of attorney is for financial decisions. Healthcare proxy is for medical decisions. And sometimes, even if you got a kid going to school, um, you want a healthcare proxy or power of attorney. Because let's say you have a kid going to school, he's, he's 18, 19 years old, gets in an accident, um, is hospitalized, you want to get access to his medical records. Sometimes, especially in some other states, you have a hard time accessing those medical records talking to the doctor if you don't have written authorization. So that's in some cases even a teenager who's going to school should think about doing a power of attorney or a health proxy. They may have no assets, but something may come up where you as a parent want to talk, you know, to that that doctor or even access the medical records. So that's where a healthcare proxy is. And again, let's not confuse a power of attorney with a healthcare proxy. Power of attorney usually is for financial purposes. Healthcare proxy is for medical. Because a lot of times I ask people, do you, do you have a power of attorney? And yeah, my, my son has a health, well, they give me a form that says my son has power of attorney under this. And then you look at it, and it's a healthcare proxy. It's not a power of attorney. It might say medical power of attorney. It might say living will, things like that. But you need two separate documents. You need one, and, and even when you look at the New York State power of attorney, you look at the New York State healthcare proxy, they tell you it's limited. The healthcare proxy is limited to medical decisions. The power of attorney is limited to financial, legal, business decisions. So if you're going to have a good plan, you need both. So in any event, you may want a power of attorney for a disabled child so you can help them apply for benefits. And even, you know, you may want a power of attorney in some cases just to handle business for somebody if they're out of state or whatever. A power of attorney is a very useful document. But don't get me wrong. If you give a power of attorney to the wrong person, they can wipe you out. They can steal you blind. You do have to be careful. You give a power of attorney to somebody you implicitly trust. If you're married, you trust your spouse and you want to protect your spouse, God forbid you have a stroke or another disabling illness, then you think about a power of attorney. And then if you have a son or daughter you implicitly trust or a nephew or niece who's like a son or daughter to you, then maybe you put them on the power of attorney. Because if you don't have a power of attorney, you have to go through the court system. The court system is expensive. It causes delays. And 
And a lot of times family discussions, arguments, fights over who's going to be the, the agent when there's none appointed if you didn't take the time to appoint it. So that's where PAV attorney comes into play. Um, and, and we just talked about PAV attorney here. I gave you two examples. If somebody's going to a nursing home, spouse, disabled child, there were also two other exceptions for Medicaid for, to deal with residents. If you have a son or daughter or a child who lives in the same house with you, and, and when I say house, it'd be a condo or co-op, but if you have a child who lives in the same residence with you for more than two years, now the law says that the child should provide care to the parent, but over years that's been fairly loosely construed that if you have a son or daughter living in the same property with you for two or more years, we can transfer that property to a trust. We can protect that property from medical bills because they can't force you to sell your own personal residence. They cannot put a lien on your house if it doesn't go through probate. So if you have your house in a trust, they can't force you to sell the house if you have a child living in the house for more than two years. Now, a lot of confusion in some cases. Well, I don't have a child. My son's 35. If your parent is alive, you are a child. You know, we've we've had 99-year-old mothers, 75-year-old children. Like one case, we had a woman who was going to a nursing home. She was 99. She had a 75-year-old daughter. The 75-year-old daughter had cancer at the time. Um, We were able to get a letter from her doctor saying she was disabled. She couldn't go back to work at her old job. We were able to transfer the assets to the disabled daughter, 75 years old, save the assets from mom's nursing home bill. So that's where a power of attorney can be very important. There's also another little-known exemption as far as a residence. This is a residence, not other assets. But if you have a brother or sister living in the same property with you for one or more years, a child is two or more years, brother or sister, one or more years. But if you have a brother or sister living in the same property for you for one or more years, sharing expenses. So let's say... You know, you have two sisters. One sister has a stroke. She's going to a nursing home. There's a house. Maybe it's the family house. Maybe the two sisters have been living in the same house for more than a few years. Um, Maybe the house is almost by accident, one sister's name. And they've been sharing expenses on the house. The one sister goes to the nursing home. If she has a properly drafted power of attorney, we can put that house in a trust, save that house from one sister's nursing home bills, because the same thing, they cannot put a lien on a house that's in trust where we have a brother or sister living in the same house for one or more years. And one of the things I should say, if you're in one of these situations, you have a relative going to a nursing home, you know, it's fine to talk to your neighbors, your friends, and everything else, but get the right advice. If you're in a crisis situation, get the right advice. And if you want to give us a call at Connors & Sullivan, you can do that at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. Do you know how many Christians live in the Middle East? Six million people. Do you know how many Christians need your help? Every single one. Do you know what we can do? With St. Francis in Beirut, we can give them hope. We can give them medicines. We can give them medical equipment. We can give them everything they're looking for because some others decided to remove Christianity from the Middle East. But if we will help them every single day, not just to feed them or clothing, it's all about giving them another day with the idea that they are recognized, that we love them, they are cousins, sisters, they are roots, 
So St. Francis in Beirut, it's all about helping Christians. And you can be part of that help too. If you want to help Father Paul in his mission, send your donations to St. Francis in Beirut, 213 Stanton Street, New York, New York, 10002. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer. Again, we've been talking about estate planning for this show. And, you know, we, we talked about why a will is important, power of attorney, healthcare proxy. Um, and we talked about, you know, the exempt transfers if somebody's going to a nursing home. There are four exempt transfers. Transfers between spouses of any type of asset. Transfers to a disabled child of any type of assets. Transfer of a homestead, whether it's a co-op, condo, a house to a son or daughter who lives in the same property for two or more years. Or transfer of a residence, whether it's a co-op, condo, house to a brother or sister who lives in the same property for one or more years sharing expenses. Um, so, uh, you know, the next thing we're going to talk about is trusts. And trust, you know, and a lot of people say, well, you know, will's outdated, you should use a trust. And, and yes, to transfer assets after you're gone, you want to use a trust. Because if there are any assets in your name alone when you pass away, those assets have to go to court, they have to go through probate. With COVID, we had all sorts of unspeakable delays and problems with probate. And even now that we're kind of out of COVID, there are still problems with probate. There's red tape, there are delays. And if you go through probate, um, everybody who's your next of kin has to be officially notified and informed of your will and given the opportunity to contest it. And some people say, well, what does my nephew had to get a copy of my will? I haven't seen him in 20 years. Uh, I don't want him anything to do with it. But if your nephew happens to be your next of kin by law, your nephew is going to get a copy of your will and the court's going to say you have a right to contest your uncle's will. So that's why you want to avoid probate. Now, you can avoid probate when you have bank accounts. You can have them in trust for, you can have them joint. But if you own real estate, the only effective way to avoid probate on real estate is through a trust agreement. Trust agreement, basically, the assets in the trust are yours as long as you're alive. After you're gone, they pass the next generation, 90% of our cases, children. They don't have to go through court. Taxes ordinarily are wiped out by death. There's no estate death tax in New York. Under 6.5 million, 6.5 million for husband, 6.5 million for wife. So ordinarily, with a husband and wife, we can get 13 million dollars out tax free. Capital gains, if the trust is properly worded, capital gains are wiped out by death. So let's say you paid 50 thousand dollars for your house 30 years ago, it's worth a million dollars today. You die day day after tomorrow. Your children sell the house for a million dollars. They do not have to pay capital gains tax. They do not have to pay income tax on the sale of the property. And, you know, sometimes people come into the office and we talk things over and they ask some of these questions. And believe me, any plan that I give you, I do not want money going to the government. They waste enough of your money. Our goal is to try to keep as much money in your family's control as possible, pay the least amount in taxes we need legally to to pay to the government. We do not want the government getting more money than they deserve. And you could say they don't deserve anything because they waste most of it. But we want to try to save your family on taxes. And any plan we give you, we're going to try to save on those taxes. So if you put your house in a trust, again, you avoid probate. The asset goes out tax-free to your heirs. And we, you know, and they can get the house and sell the house without paying estate tax in New York under $6.5 million. Now, it, it doesn't happen as much as you used to. 
But some people would say, well, instead of doing a trust agreement, I don't, I don't really understand it. And again, a trust agreement is a family contract. It's your house as long as you're alive. After you're gone, it goes to your kids. Now, 90% of the trusts we do are probably between parents and children. But if you want to write in there, uncle and aunt, nephew and niece, fine. Same principles apply. If you know your younger brother or sister, significant other, I'm gonna. I use the terminology usually in our in, in our seminars, um, parents to children, because that's ninety percent of what the trust we do. But again, if you want to make it younger brother or sister, significant others, and, and in some cases it's more important to do a a trust for a significant other because legally, obviously, they may not be related to you by law. A domestic partner is not related to you by law. They're allowed to get certain benefits, but they're not related to you by law. All right, so let's say we you know, we have a trust agreement, and you say, well, all right, you're saying it's the easiest way to transfer assets to my children, but wouldn't it just be a little bit easier to put my son or daughter's name on the deed? And, yeah, it's easier, but at the same time, too many bad things can happen. Putting your son or daughter's name on a deed is not like putting your son or daughter's name on a bank account. You put your son's name on a bank account, something goes wrong, you go to the bank, you take the money out. You put your son or daughter's name on the deed, something goes wrong, their name's on that deed, you can't take it back. And I'm not just talking about if you get in a fight with your son or daughter, which occasionally happens, not really that often, but worse things can happen. You put your son's name on the deed to your house. He dies before you. He's married. Well, guess what? His wife may have a claim against your house. It's almost impossible to completely disinherit a spouse in New York. So she may have a claim against your house no matter how you word it. She can maybe force you to sell your house or you pay her off. And in some cases, I've seen it almost as blackmail. The, let's say the surviving spouse of your son. Maybe she's only entitled because it's worded different ways. Maybe she's only entitled to 10% of your house, which is worth a million dollars. But she gets a lawyer and says, I want $200,000 for my 10% interest. If not, I'm going to force you to sell. And they can do that. And you, you may say, that's not fair. Well, it's not fair, but it could be done. So that's one reason you just don't put your son or daughter's name on your deed. Um, your daughter's married to a businessman. He's taking expenses and deductions off his tax return he shouldn't be taking. Your daughter files a joint return with him. They're married. The IRS audits their return. The IRS puts a lien on their assets. Your daughter's name is on your deed. The IRS is going to put a lien on your house, and you can't clear that up until that IRS lien is paid. And don't think your daughter can just sign the deed back over to you, and nobody's going to know about it. The IRS agent in charge of the file can type your daughter's name into a computer, and he can see every real estate transaction that she was engaged in for the last 60 years in New York. There is no privacy whatsoever in whose name is on your deed. You put your daughter's name on the deed, the IRS agent can plug his name, plug her name into the computer, and then put a lien on the house, even if she deeded it back over to you. But if she deeded it once the lien is in place, that lien is still on your house. Uh, your son's a very reliable man. He's not married. He's single. He's got a job. They take the taxes out of the paycheck. He's not going to get in trouble with the IRS. He's driving one day. It's a heavy rainstorm. He puts his foot on the brakes. The brakes get. He hits the back of a school bus. Children are playing in the back of the bus. They shouldn't be playing. But they're not responsible. They're children. Your son's responsible. He hit the back of the school bus. He's got insurance, but it doesn't cover everything. Those children have a lawsuit against your son. Those children get a judgment against your son. 
those children have a judgment against your house. You can't sell or mortgage your house until that judgment is paid. And believe me, these things happen. I'm not using my imagination. I've seen them happen. I'm using my memory when I'm telling you these stories. There was a case that hit the Daily News years ago now. It was, you know, around holiday season. And the headline in the Daily News was, Hit the Bricks, Granny. And the story behind the headlines is, you know, Paul Harvey used to say, 95-year-old woman owned a house downtown Brooklyn, Carroll Gardens. At the time, the house was worth about $2 million. Today, it's probably worth at least $3 million if you know the neighborhood. So she's 95 years of age. She says, well, how long am I going to live? I'm going to make it easy on my daughter. I'm going to put the, the deed to the house in my daughter's name. The daughter's 70. The daughter dies. The daughter has a will leaving everything to her son. Um, he inherits now this $2 million house in Carroll Gardens, which back then it was subject to an estate tax, a death tax. So he owes $100,000 to New York State. And his grandmother's living in the house, so he owes 100000 to New York State. He's got to sell the house to pay the debt. And he can't sell the house with his grandmother living in the house, so sorry, Grandma, I got to evict you. Hit the bricks, Granny. And I'll tell you, if you get on the Internet, if you get on the Internet and you look at the stories that pop up, this happens more than you might think. You can't lose control. With the trust, you keep control of the ownership of your house. You get in a fight with your son, you write him out, you leave it to your daughter. Your son gets in that car accident, there's a judgment against him. Maybe you skip it or put it in further trust for him, and then maybe it goes to his children. If it doesn't go to his children, maybe we put it in trust for him and his sister manages it for him. There's always something we can do. And you never want to give up complete control. And not only that, let's say for the sake of arguing, you own a house, you're a senior citizen. You have your senior citizen's exemption. You put your son and daughter's name on the deed. You know, even if it's joint, assuming they're not senior citizens and they have extra income, you may lose your senior citizen's exemption and your real estate taxes may go up. And that happens a lot more than some people think. You know, you just don't change the deed, then you lose the senior citizen's exemption, the city puts a lien on the house for the extra taxes, and you got a problem. Do it right. Do it to a trust. You're still the owner for tax purposes. It's your house as long as you're alive. You don't give up control. And on, under ordinary circumstances, let's say $6.5 million per person, we don't pay an estate a death tax. There's no death tax in New York under $6.5 million. The federal amount right now is $12,900,000 per person. So I mean, that means most of us can get our assets out completely tax-free as far as New York State is concerned, as far as the federal government is concerned. Um Gift taxes is another thing that a lot of people ask me questions for. And there's one misconception or misunderstanding about gift taxes. Right now, you can give $17,000 a year to any one person and not have to file file a gift tax return. Now, but that doesn't mean you pay a tax if it's more than 17000 there's no federal estate tax, again, or gift tax under $12,900,000. So let's say we have a husband and wife, and the husband gives $17,000 to his son. The wife gives 17000 to the son. The husband gives $17,000 to the daughter, and the wife does the same thing. So $68,000 they give away today. They don't have to pay or file a gift tax. But they won't have to pay a gift tax until the lifetime gifts exceed 
$12,900,000. And, and in my conversation right now, I'm probably simplifying it more than I should. But you get the gist. Now you say, well, why why do you have to file a return over $17,000? Well, among other things, the IRS wants to keep track of money, you know, money laundering, things like that. Of course, in a few years, we won't have to worry about that because the government's going to declare cash illegal and they're going to know everything you do. And if you give something, you know, you're going to get put in jail. You spend too much money on gasoline. You spend too much money on uh, meat, you know, for your budget. You know, you, we, we don't want you to do that. And I'm not joking about that. The, the system's in place to outlaw cash within a few years. But in any event, there's no gift tax under $12,900,000. Now, where some people do get a little confused again, they think, well, my mom's going to a nursing home. She's got three kids. And so we can give $17,000 to each one of those three kids. We can give away $51,000. And that's safe from a nursing home. No. The rules on Medicaid and the rules on gift taxes are two separate rule books. One has nothing to do with the other one. Um, if you give more than 13000 a month away from Medicaid, you're going to incur a penalty for nursing home Medicaid. Any transactions you do five years prior to your application for benefits is subject to review and recall. By the way, in New York, too, I mean, the $17,000 is tax-free. If you give away... More than $6.5 million or your estate is worth more than $6.5 million when you die. New York State can claw back the gifts made that you made within three years of your death. And I know this is getting complicated, um, and you know we're running out of time. But if you want to schedule an appointment to talk about gift taxes, estate taxes, protecting your assets from nursing home bills, Medicaid, come in. We can schedule an appointment. We do not charge for the initial consultation. The first consultation is free on anything we do as far as estate planning. Everything we do as far as estate planning is also done on a flat fee basis. Very rarely do we charge by the hour. So you come in, you talk it over, you know how much it will cost you. There might be increments depending on whether you have one deed or two deeds and so forth. But you would know pretty much what it's going to cost you to carry out the plan, and then you take it from there. And a little bit of advice Go to somebody who knows what they're doing about estate planning because people screw up their estates. They buy these kits. They do it yourself things, and sometimes it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, again, we're going to be doing seminars at the end of the month. Beth, if you can give the dates on the seminars. And my, before we do that, Michael, just tell the audience, if you want to schedule an appointment, what languages that we deal with in this office? All right. So if uh, outside of English – if you want to come to one of our attorneys, we can speak Spanish, Italian, Greek, Russian, Polish, Romanian, Ukrainian, Mandarin, Cantonese, Fujianese, Tagalog, and Hindu. Are you pronouncing Tagalog right? We have to check with Mel on that one. I don't know. Triple check on me. Okay. All right, Beth, where are we doing our seminars next month? Okay, one, once more, Monday, June 19th, Buckley's Restaurant. 2926 Avenue S, Brooklyn, New York, 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Tuesday, June 20th, DeLuca's Trattoria, 616 Forest Avenue in Staten Island, 
11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Wednesday, June 21st, Greenhouse Cafe, 7717 Third Avenue, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Thursday, June 22nd, Connolly's Corner, 71-17 Grand Avenue in Maspeth, 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Friday, June 23rd, Adria Hotel, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside, 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Okay, attendance is free. Please call for a reservation. We want to set up the room properly, depending on the amount of people coming in. Hopefully, we'll listen to you. Now. You'll be listening to us next week at the same stations and times. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.